welcome to the Evidence-Based Nursing podcast. This is the second podcast in a series of three that we're doing on long COVID. I'm Alison Twycross and I'm the Editor-in-Chief of Evidence-Based Nursing and also the Chair of Long COVID Nurses and Midwives UK, as well as being a member of the Long COVID Support Employment Group. And I'm delighted that Kirsty and Claire from the Long COVID Employment Group have joined us today to answer the questions that nurses and midwives with Long COVID have about returning to work. Now, Claire, you were going to introduce yourself. Yes, it's really nice to be here as well and great to be working with you. I'm Claire Rayner. I'm an occupational physician by background. I've had um, problems um, after COVID since March 2020, which is two years now. Um, And I've found myself over the last couple of years gathering together with other people in the same situations. And um, I suppose gathering information and advocating, particularly about work things, you know, about what can be done to support people and so on. Thank you. And Kirsty. Hi everyone, my name's Kirsty Stanley and I'm an independent occupational therapist uh, based down in Dorset and I'm part of the employment group as part of Long COVID support with Claire. Again, I used to help people with work support issues in my in my previous job and so when calls came for people that were interested in doing that for people with long covid i kind of recognized that some of the issues that i'd seen back then would be the case now um and i've been unwell with long covid since january 2020 so i'm a a two years two months (laughs) thank you both and i should add that i've had long covid for two years And um, I've learned a lot from the two of you since I started joining the employment group of long COVID support. So thank you for that as well. One of the the key questions that frequently comes up from nurses and midwives with long COVID is when do I know it's the right time to go back to work? That is going to be a very individual case by case basis. Um, One of the things that we know about long COVID is rushing back to a full uh, work life schedule um, straight away after the initial infection can cause uh, difficulties with long COVID. So where you have the option to kind of take things a little bit easier um, after an initial infection, then please do so. Obviously, what we're probably talking to now is people that have been off for uh, for a period of time um, and are now thinking about, you know, am I ready to return to work? And what we need to look at for that is actually your everyday life and how you're managing with your everyday life. So if you are coping with getting up and washed and dressed in the morning at a time that would be appropriate for work and cooking and looking after yourself and doing everything else, then I would urge you to kind of try and add in to your day some work-related activity. So that's maybe sat at the emails on your computer, um, browsing the internet. Um, If you have quite a physical job, it might mean going for a walk around the block to see how you get on. And we want you to be doing that without a huge increase in symptoms before you consider whether you're ready to go back to work. Um, I'm sure Claire will talk about this later. You don't have to be 100% ready to go back to work, but you do need to be at a level where 
whatever phased return you manage to organize with your employer, you feel I can get from where I am now to where I need to be within that space of time. So I wouldn't hedge your bets at 25% of your of your previous function. Um, but maybe if you're sort of heading towards 50% or so, you might be able to get there. But it depends on your employer and how flexible they are with your return to work. I think that's a really good example. And actually remembering that you have to function in life to go to work. You have to get up, get dressed, have breakfast. Drive. And drive to get there is really important. And I know a lot of people are struggling with the fact they have an hour's commute Mm -hmm. and that that would be all they could do in the day. Yeah. I think those are really helpful guidelines. Yeah, and we'll talk about some some places that you could go for support with things like that a bit later on in the podcast as well. What should happen before I go back to work? I've decided that I can function enough and if I negotiate a proper return to work package, the likelihood is that I'll succeed. What should happen next, Claire? Yeah, absolutely. And I think I've got to sort of couch it as well with what should happen just before that as well. I I think it's really important, as Kirsty says, that you have adequate rest in the first place because this virus is is quite a beast, as my infectious diseases consultant said, and that initial rest perhaps more than you would with other viruses. So um, I, I would like people to have had proper health assessment before they come back because it's such a complex condition and it varies between individuals so much that you need to have an assessment which has characterised what your problems are. And there are a number of different things, as people probably know, such as autonomic dysfunction and whether your oxygen saturations are actually adequate. So there are really a checklist of things that need to be assessed and that will help to tweak your return to work because it'll depend what problems you have. I'd like to see that earlier for people rather than later, because once you've done that, you can perhaps get some treatment for symptoms. And it's those treatments for symptoms which can radically improve people's functioning. Um, So I won't go into that too much here, but things like having your fast heart rate controlled down to a more functionable level, people can really find that they pick up in terms of their daily function. So I'd like to see that happen before people come back to work and particularly to characterise their issues. Because if you've got cardiac or respiratory symptoms, we need to know what's causing them. In particular, because in many cases, nursing is is a very strenuous job. You know, if you're not on your feet all day, you are certainly often moving large loads and all sorts of other conditions. So, you know, you need respiratory, cardiorespiratory clearance. Now, I'm going to say something that people might not expect. One thing that should happen when you've been off work for a while is that actually your manager should keep in touch with you. So I'm kind of advising, don't be afraid if you get a call from your managers, because that's really important that they keep in touch with you just what I call a very light touch contact, because that makes it easier when you're coming back to work, that contact is in place. They should really only be sort of phoning up to see how you are and if there's anything they can do to help, but it's quite powerful. um, So don't be afraid to pick up the phone if the manager or the hospital's ringing you. It gives you that sense of being in contact with the work as well. 
And that should pave the way to discussing or being able to say, I think I feel ready to try something. And I would definitely recommend that um, nursing staff see occupational health before they come back or, or a telephone appointment, you know, however it's working. I say that because it's a complex job. It's a complex working environment. So I think you really need that tailored advice from an occupational health department. So those are kind of my first things. Once that has taken place, occupational health could advise in terms of the impact of your symptoms and what adjustments could be made on your return to work. The next step after that would be to have a risk assessment done. You have new health problems, you must have a new risk assessment in your workplace and that should take place between your line manager and you. OH sometimes is involved. Okay, thank you. Now, a question that I often get asked or is often posed on the Long Covid Facebook pages, does your employer have an obligation to do what occupational health says in their assessment? That's a really, really good question and it does get asked all of the time. And the straightforward answer is no, the employer doesn't have an absolute legal requirement to do that because the health and safety law says that you must have a suitable and sufficient risk assessment for the duties of your job. And it also says that the employer only has to put in what a reasonable adjustment. So these are legal terms and I wouldn't get too frightened by them. But the word reasonable in the eyes of the law says that, okay, managers have got an employer and managers have to go quite far in accommodating people, but they don't have to do something that is unreasonable in legal terms. And that might be something that involves too much of a change to everybody else. Or, for instance, it wouldn't be considered reasonable to create a new post, a brand new post. The way I always think of it is we're advisory. I'm looking from the point of view of the um, staff member and thinking what's best for them health-wise, what's safe for them health-wise. This is what I would like to see happen. Or actually, more often, I try and get the person to say what they would like to see happen, and then we work with that. We then advise... Um, And that's really how it stands. We're advising the employer and we're advising the person. But nobody has to do what we say. You know, a nurse may not agree with me and that's fine because you may have better ideas on what your job involves. Thank you for clarifying that. The other thing in what you said that I found very interesting was right at the beginning when you talked about having a proper health assessment. And particularly when it's cardio and respiratory. And this is one of my bugbears at the moment because apparently all my tests are normal. Yes. <laughs> but I'm still really breathless yep. and I'm still spiking. My pulse is spiking. Yeah. Just getting dressed sometimes. Um, but there's nothing wrong with me because my CT scan was normal. <laughs> and I would imagine, and I'm not going back to work, as you know, I've, I've handed in my notice, but for yeah. someone working in a physically arduous area that must be holding them up getting back to work if that isn't available this is a massive problem and what people need is early assessment really for 
any time from four weeks onwards if they've still got symptoms. I've always said this, early assessment and the right assessments. The um, Defence Medical um, Rehabilitation Services that's provided by the Armed Forces has had a tailored programme in place since May 2020 and before with a checklist of what should be done. Now, it's all about doing the right tests. Um, So... We know that oxygen saturations need to be checked. That may be more important than doing CT scans in certain cases. But obviously, breathlessness can be caused by both heart and lungs and other things. It can be caused by autonomic dysfunction, actually, in COVID. So it can be caused by brainstem dysfunction. So all of those things need looking at. Um, So right tests. Things like um, an echocardiogram is a simple thing. An ECG is a simple thing. Sitting and standing, blood pressures and pulses, very simple. We're hoping that we can train, you know, many healthcare workers up to do those rather simple tests and that'll screen for autonomic dysfunction. It may be more beneficial to have a cardiac MRI than other cardiac tests. Or we could get to the stage where you say, right, we know what we find if we do those tests. If we can't provide a big scan for everybody let's treat symptoms and and see how people go but yes this is one of the biggest hold-ups in people getting back to work you know actually there's an argument for getting those you know for the employer actually thinking about even funding those things and because it would be so much cheaper that's always been my views on these things yeah it seems quite simple really doesn't it yeah And the other thing that needs screening for and or consideration of is the cognitive problems because it's I was so just common. about to say that. <laughs> yeah. What are we going to do about that, Kirsty? There's even less input for that, isn't there? Yeah, cognitive challenges, brain fog, but also potentially cognitive dysfunction appear yeah. to be fairly common in long COVID. Um, and obviously, nursing is a job that you know you work with the public. You um, can do things in that role that could put public health and safety at risk so if you're having any sort of difficulties with your cognition there really should be some sort of screening around that Um, and again that will generally be around uh, accessing the long covid clinics where they exist um, occupational therapy where they don't you know like claire said urging employers to kind of potentially buy in vocational rehabilitation occupational therapy um, specialisms to actually look at that for people that's, that's a really good point. And I know that several nurses and midwives have said to me that they're terrified of going back to work because of their cognitive dysfunction and that they're frightened of putting their patients at risk. Um, and it's a patient safety issue. So thank you for adding that. That's, really, that's a really important point. You can also, I mean, as well as those things, you can do an on-the-job assessment. And that's what I've always advised in my editorials and stuff about return to work. Um, you know, the best way to test is somebody on the job. I would certainly recommend that they have the an OT assessment first. But if there's any doubt, then to be supervised and assessed that way. That's, that's a really good idea, but very difficult in reality. Mm-hmm. In the lack of staff. The lack of staff. And I think the nursing workforce wants people back at work, I functioning know. 200%. Yeah. And that, that, that's a huge, a huge problem. Definitely. I think that's a really, really valid point that you bring up, Alison, around the, you know, 
in the healthcare, we are very, very used to working at 200 plus percent yeah. of our of our um, daily um, tasks at work. And that's one of the first things that I recommend that people kind of really look at their core role and cut out sort of the extraneous stuff yeah. that you might have done beforehand that isn't really essential to your role. Because um, when you're back at work, people often we look fairly well, especially when you first see us, like, check, check back. <laughs> in a couple of hours later and we might look decidedly different um but then people don't understand why you're not doing all of the meeting chairing or you know what uh, the birthday lists or whatever it was that you were doing before as part of your your role so it's sort of cutting out what is non-essential and focusing on what really is um essential to your role i think that's really good advice so the next question and i think both of you might want to say something about this is when should people involve their unions, assuming they're in one? So our advice has always been to involve your union as soon as possible, where you do have a union rep. Um, Especially, again, we're going back to the cognitive dysfunction. It's useful to always have somebody else in the room that could take notes, that could document what was being said um, and can just make sure that any sort of return to work process is being followed appropriately. That's that's what they're there for. Um, unfortunately, I think people tend to feel that it's quite um, conflict inducing to, to bring a union rep and that shouldn't be the case. The reps are there to protect our interests as employees and make sure that the employer is following their duty. So we would say... As soon as you start having return to work yeah. uh, meetings, get your union rep involved. I would agree. It's a good thing. And we actually, what we're trying to do in Long COVID Support Employment Group is try and really raise awareness in, in the unions and give them the support that they need to support staff. I think that's really important because more and more I'm seeing people complaining yeah. that their union reps don't know enough about Long COVID. That's and right. guidance in the country and best practice guidelines and and so it's important that there's a resource that they can they can draw on for that I think yeah there, there is and it's also important if you aren't happy with the with the support you're getting from your union rep that you can ask for somebody different to to yeah. come to your meetings so um, I know a number of us have kind of perhaps gone to a more regional based rep because they felt that there may be a conflict if people know each other within an organization um, and also the the you know the regional reps get paid so they get <laughs> they get more opportunity to actually trade whereas we know that people in healthcare are managing the pandemic still so may not have the chance to to look up and find out about long covid i think yeah people working in clinical practice are still in survival mode plus yeah. i think so tough so if you're not in a union a lot of people a lot of nurses w appear not to have been because of the cost and if they join a union now they won't represent them because it's an issue that started before they joined. Yeah. And apparently there was a legal case that said that that had to happen, I'm told. So if you're not in a union, where can you get advice? 
there's a few different um, things that we would recommend. The first one is you can still have somebody um, attend meetings with you. So you could have a trusted colleague that is there as sort of an advocate or, you know, just just there again to document what, what is going on so that you're not having to go to those meetings um, alone necessarily. The other place that you can go to for advice is obviously places like the Citizens Advice Bureau that can sort of give you guidance on your legal rights and ACAS, um, the Advisory and Conciliatory Service, are another good source of information around um, your legal rights around employment. For some people that are accessing sort of the long COVID clinics and if you have got good healthcare access, you may have occupational therapists that can support you with work meetings as well. So that was something that I used to do for people with um, multiple sclerosis in in my role within the NHS but it's not a role that everybody does take on it depends on service uh, service limitations etc um, so you can also consider maybe even asking your employer to to get a vocational uh, specialist involved to kind of look at that support and what you need to get back to work safely yeah what does a sensible return to work plan look like Uh, This is a really interesting question. And it leads on nicely from what Kirsty said, but also what I was saying, but your question before really is, does the employer have to take our advice? So what I want to say here is that the NHS and other big healthcare employers are actually required to be what we call exemplar employers. They're supposed to lead the way in showing other employers how to accommodate for their staff. And this has been set out in nice guidance for quite some time and and other national guidance. And this is in part because it's a lot, you know, certainly the NHS is is such a large organisation. So there's a much bigger duty on large organisations to accommodate for staff. As Kirsty has said, you don't wait till you're 100% fit for work um, because we know that if you've been off sick for some time, you, you don't get there before you get back to work. And this is based on decades of research here. Work is part of the recovery. What I mean by that is you've got to be well enough to do some, but it's only as you start to pick things up gradually that your health will, you know, improve more. So... It's madness to say, I'll wait till 100% because you'll wait forever. And managers need to understand this. This is the biggest myth that needs to change. I think we've gone back decades in this understanding, um, in part because people are very busy. But you've got to look at, um, as Kirst said, what's the absolute core necessity bits. For, for you as the employee or staff member going back, what you need to look at is what you can do at this current time. Always start from there, what you can do. And that's what you physically or cognitively able to do without causing it to worsen. So the two biggest things that my colleagues and I have been recommending with long COVID is are these the phase return in general needs to be much longer than average. In some cases, it has to be very prolonged. And that all, you know, the longer you've been off, the longer you may need in the phase. 
So it needs to be starting really small. And it, it's often starting ridiculously small, like a couple of hours a day, two days a week, but with days in between. And that sounds so small that most employers will come say, oh, don't be ridiculous. But if you want to get people with long COVID back, you've got to start it that small and build it up gradually. We've, we've learned from hard experience otherwise. The other thing that needs to happen is that it needs to be a very individualised arrangement between the staff member and the manager, and it has to be monitored. So, you know, you might have that return to work meeting, have your return to work risk assessment and agree what your initial plan is, but it has to be reviewed regularly. And so it's really worth putting time points in and saying, right, where are you now? Do we increase? Do we stay? And in terms of the mechanics of a phase return, it's not just about hours. It's about adjustments to your duties. So it's very difficult to provide you with something that could cover everybody because everyone's jobs are so different and everyone's medical problems are so different. So where we've seen success is that slow, measured, reviewed return. And the NHS doesn't want to do this at the moment because it's so stretched, as you say. But we have a choice here as a nation and as employers. As, do we want something or do we want nothing? That's how I see it. Do you want us back to do something or is it going to stay nothing? And that's no good for anyone. It's absolutely no good for anyone. So I've always said and written in this pandemic, employers need to look at what's their really core activities and what can go hang for now. Because we ain't got enough people otherwise. Yeah, well said. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, very well said. And something, having something as opposed yeah. to having nothing yes. seems incredibly sensible. Mm. And actually one person did tell me, uh, a healthcare support worker in the community, that that is exactly what her manager said to her when she went back to work. Mm -hmm. um, but so often people don't understand. The, the, no. the other thing that doesn't seem to be built into the return to work plans is the, what am I going to do if I have a relapse? Exactly, exactly. And I've been working with the um, World Health Organization. We've all been <laughs> working at these dizzy heights, you know, kind of advising. But actually, it's been really interesting because we were discussing this very point today. With long COVID, the physios and OTs I was working with said, listen, it's not just about aiming for recovery. I'm sort of doing an inverted commas thing with my fingers there. It's about coping with relapse, preventing relapse, and sort of managing all that. So, yeah, it's very much about that. Yeah. And it's better to have what we call a sustainable return, isn't it, Kirsty? Yeah, definitely. Um, I think for some people, the relapses will be because they've gone in too quickly yeah. with their return. But we do know that also long COVID just does sort of wax and wane. <laughs> yeah. um, for, for women in particular, we know that yeah. there's a, a definite 
or, you know, an anecdotal definite link to our cycles. So I am, you know, a nightmare the week before week of my period. Um, so I'm likely to, you know, not be on top form when I'm doing that. So, you know, we do need to kind of build in for these. And I think this kind of brings us on to the point of discussing whether long COVID is classed as a disability for, for legal reasons. And that is, again, it's a it's something that hasn't been clearly clearly defined um it's not a named condition such as uh, multiple sclerosis people with multiple sclerosis i used to work with is a named condition but for the majority of us that were have been off or uh, look likely to have been unwell sorry for around a year um and with it affecting our day-to-day lives that is sort of indicating that it meets the the criteria of disability under the Equality Act, as does this kind of idea of uh, waxing and waning symptoms, as does the idea of cumulative um, disability as well. So if you have pre-existing health conditions, as well as long COVID, you may kind of hit that target um, even sooner, which means that um, the reasonable adjustments that your employer needs to consider do change so it might be things like appreciating that somebody may be off more frequently than another member of staff um so you know looking at adjusting the attendance triggers um and using that as a under a disability policy rather than a sick leave policy might be something that that needs to be considered you know allowing people reasonable time to attend medical appointments which is you know really important for them keeping healthy uh, and that sort of stuff will be um will start to come in then as well i consider that a completely basic adjustment and in days gone by the nhs was quite good at allowing for that time off for appointments i mean you know it's just necessary and it's it's basic yep i think people struggle to get it now just because of the Lack of nurses, lack of midwives, lack of all members of staff. Anyway, better stay focused. So one of the things that um, people are having suggested to them is that they should be redeployed. And as you'd expect, some trusts are better at doing this than others. Some people seem to give people six weeks to find a job. But my question was... What sort of roles should someone consider if they're going to be redeployed because of their long COVID symptoms? Again, um, there is different kind of aspects of redeployment. Are we talking about temporary redeployment or are we talking about permanent redeployment? You know, we've we've talked very much about people that have been potentially off for a long time, but you might find somebody that is actually not feeling too bad, but just can't go back to that busy ward environment and may be able to work in a sort of a more administrative or back office type role while they do their recovery and then hopefully you know get back onto the onto the ward floor afterwards um which is a very different sort of circumstance to to you know manager saying that we've tried everything that we can try which in our experience unfortunately isn't usually the case so that's the first thing is try everything you can try to get somebody back to work and then if they really can't fulfill their their role and their function is there something else that that they could be redeployed into and that would depend on their symptom profile as to what that would look like again if somebody has got huge cognitive issues asking them to go into a completely unfamiliar job role task 
is going to be challenging, but that's often what is you know what is being asked. Um, people can rely on their their professional knowledge. That professional knowledge doesn't tend to go away. The cognitive dysfunction is is more around short term memory organization, things like that. It's not around you know my thirty years of nursing has sort of disappeared from my head. It is that more sort of yeah organizational structure routine aspect of of the issue. So. You know, it's it's whether there are, again, it's usually going to be non-clinical facing roles that people could potentially take a backseat and do because it's less time pressured and they can organise their time better to fit in rest breaks and um, they may be able to work from home and that sort of thing. So if, you, if you're at that stage, this is where you really, really need sort of occupational health and or vocational rehabilitation yeah. specialists involved rather than just actually people saying, oh, let's see if we can get your redeployment because it is highly unlikely that that will be successful if it's not managed appropriately. That's a really good point that I hadn't thought about that you need the experts in there to help with setting up those redeployment opportunities. Yeah. They've got to be suitable to... Fitness for work is a sort of balance between a person's capabilities at that time due to whatever health issues and the demands of the job. So it's getting the right fit, as Kirsty says. And I think I would just add to that that temporary or permanent redeployment are, are very much processes that are sort of embedded within human resources so they're much more of a set process the let's face it in the first part of the pandemic people were redeployed to all sorts of unfamiliar areas weren't they at the drop of a hat so it can be done but but it does need to be tailored and you need to be aware that it's part of a process if you get into the permanent redeployment situation you're given notice periods and things like that. Okay, that makes sense. From what people have been saying, it's been happening yeah. to them. So thank yeah. you both for that. Yeah, I mean, the other thing as well, Alison, is that um, people are often expected to apply for those. Yeah. So while they're still unwell and they're struggling, yeah. they're expected to do an application form, an interview, um, and go up against people that do do that job. So if it is a completely unfamiliar role to them, that is a, you know, a challenge in itself, being able to kind of again, maybe even have the confidence because your confidence may well be have been knocked by knowing that you can't return to your substantive post to kind of say, can I really do this other job? So we're asking a, a huge amount of people when, when we're looking at redeployment that we really need to kind of consider a little bit better. Yep. We don't want to be setting people up to fail. No. When they're already feeling pretty kind of rubbish i think we've seen that happen too much actually we've seen people try and be you know do four hours and then have you know a shift and then have to go home because they were expected to do everything and then you know and then they're back to square one for a while and then they try again and the manager says yeah you've got to be fit 100 percent," you know and back to square one we go and those and those reasonable adjustments that they, that they would have needed in their in their substantive post they are likely to still need in this new post yeah. as well so you still you need that employer that is happy to perhaps um you know it, it might be about people starting to look at 
maybe it's not about redeployment, but it's about the amount of time that you can spend. So about reducing hours on contracts and stuff like that, and whether that's again, temporary or permanent or, you know, but all of this has got huge knock on implications in terms of thinking about people's pensions, um, their livelihoods, their ability to pay their bills, et cetera, et cetera. So it's, you know, it needs to be a part of a, a, a fuller discussion. And again, getting advice from union and sort of legal reps from unions to kind of see well if I do this how does that affect my pension or how does that affect you know my years of service or what whatever it happens to be it's not as simple as going yeah okay I'll go and try an admin role somewhere yeah that's all very interesting and I can see why people struggle with it when I suspect a lot of people aren't bringing in the experts the other thing people are asking um a lot about is okay occupational health say I should be working from home one person I know has been told there's nothing in the whole hospital that she can do working from home and often people are asked for examples of of what they can do from working at home so I wondered Claire if you could give you could give some examples yeah absolutely um first of all I'll kind of think about the what occupational health is saying the way I see it is to think about what are you finding difficult? This is how I would approach it as an OH person. I would say, okay, what symptoms have you got? In my mind, I'll be calculating the impact from my knowledge and experience and the impact combined, which will lead into saying, okay, what things are you finding difficult at the moment? Now, typically with long COVID, it's things like the cognitive issues. And so I might ask for a bit of clarification on exactly what those things are. But commonly it's going to be fatigue, which in work terms affects your stamina and your endurance. So it's how long you're able to do anything. I'll be looking at factors that aggravate it. So basically what I'm saying is, if it was me in occupational health, I would only say... I'd only say anything if I could justify it. So if I found a particular reason to say you must work from home, I would explain what that reason was. But I think more useful to say this person has um, severe pain in the spine and would find, you know, if they permit you to say that, or it's not possible to go on public transport at the moment and that's what she'd have to do. So it's giving a little bit more clarity or justification for why they might have to work at home. So I'd be thinking about what's difficult. So standing up for a long period may be difficult, is commonly difficult. Stamina and endurance... Um, fatigue, cognitive things are kind of the combined effect. So I'd I'd have to justify why they would stay at home. So a manager could understand as well. If I can give a clear reason, more likely to do it. But I think it is things like the commute may add too much. And I think, so whether it's reasonable or not just depends on what what the reason is, if you like. Um, I think several things can be done at home because that's how we've all operated in the pandemic, isn't it? So I think that's shown us that we can do much more than we thought. And I think the kind of roles that you can think about, there's telephone or video appointments for your face-to-face clinical contacts. Those are suitable in some situations. And I know some nursing staff who are doing that and some doctors. 
So there may well be a role for certain clinics that you can do like that. I would actually say, let's think a bit differently. There are really useful and really important things like audit. And people may groan, <laughs> but I'm a bit of an audit queen. I actually think it's a really useful thing. And it's the thing that often on the back burner, but can have a big impact on, it could have a big impact on that ward that you usually work on if you do the audit that's been desperately needed doing for a while. So I think managers could think about things like that. But that's just one example. There's so much organisational work that you could do from home. Yeah, so I, I said we'd come back to sort of this idea of um, driving in <laughs> a bit later. <laughs> and that that was, again, it was a huge issue for, for my previous clients and um, we're seeing it as an issue for, for people with long COVID as well. You know, driving is one of the most complex tasks that we can do that requires so much concentration and, and energy use that... Uh, sort of applying for um, a scheme called access to work may support people with getting taxis to work that is a common reasonable adjustment we we do have to proviso that with the fact that they are running on a waiting list probably because of the extra demand caused by long covid um, and people aren't even being assessed until about sort of at least um, 12 12 weeks plus post um, referral to that scheme, uh, which when your um, sort of return to work is hinging on that, then that is, um, is something that is, you know, causing holdups with that. So again, it's it's whether employers could think outside the box and, you know, is there yeah. is there other people um, in that general vicinity where, the, where this person lives that they could get a lift in with? Could the employer fund taxis in the interim obviously in the longer term people may be applying for benefits that can help with those things as well but because it is to get to work and to be able to function at work when you get there then that that should be kind of something that perhaps Mm. you know employers are looking at if access to work can't do that in the interim and yeah definitely working from home we've shown over the last two years that that can be done in a huge amount of um, cases and it's I don't think (laughs) it's unreasonable to kind of say to you know that somebody within the team focuses on you know the clients the the patients that want that virtual service because there are lots of us out there I'm one one of them if if I can get away without going somewhere I'm gonna do that at the moment (laughs) exactly um so there are people that are going to be perfectly happy with a telephone call or a video call and those can be done from home um so it is around kind of yeah people not rushing to get back to the old way of doing things but you never recognizing that that we are doing things differently now and that's okay yeah. and and it's okay if different people within the team are doing things differently but it does it does take bravery to kind of do that as a manager to kind of acknowledge that people are, are maybe not working exactly the same way um so yeah that's my two penny worth on that you might even find i mean you know i know that everyone's so pressurized and in, in, in other times you, you might be having a team meeting and say right you know some people want a bit of Career development, not career development, but they want to swap their tasks with somebody else. You know, there's always bits that people want to change in, you know. So, you know, if you can have that sort of team meeting and say, I'd love to drop this for a while. And somebody that's been off sick says, yeah, but I'd love to come in and just do that because it will get me 
you know, even if I've got to make <laughs> cups of tea or whatever, I mean, that's off the top of my head. <laughs> but, you know, I'll go around with the drinks trolley. That'll give me some confidence, you know. Yeah, we'll sort of channel Leslie McNiven, who's our um, operational HR person here, and kind of say that actually, you know, we're so used to fulfilling a set uh, job description, professional role that as an you know as organisations we forget about well, what is it that needs delivering, um, and you know can we mix how we do that so that you know there's a lot of um, role blurring between professions nowadays. So why can't we do that within a profession and sort of blur the roles and who's responsible for what sort of aspects of of service delivery? Um, so you know that you know a band six nurse could be completely non-clinical versus could be um you know completely clinical whatever is we, we want to do everything now and, and that doesn't necessarily deliver services so you know we have to think cleverly about it now that that was my last question but is there anything either of you thinks we've forgotten to cover I think those were just brilliant questions. And I think it's really important to have answered the ones that come to you commonly because we really, we just really want to help. We're really passionate about sort of, it's all about trying to empower people to help themselves. And I hope that we've been able to give some of those sort of messages, you know, think what you're finding difficult. When it comes back to that return to work plan with your manager, tell them what your ideas are. There's there's a couple. I used to teach on the National Health and Work Project to training other doctors to even ask about work, and there were a couple of questions, and they're really open questions. But but to be asked, how important is it to you to get back to work? And you might scale that on a one to ten or whatever if you want. You know, many people are going to say it's it's really important. It's what I want to do. Um, how confident are you is the next question. But I think, as you've said, quite a lot of people know they're not. And then I always added the third question, which was, what, what are your ideas for how you could get back? And you would be amazed how many people have a pretty near complete idea for themselves. And as an occupational health professional, I used to think that is a lovely conversation to have. Right, let's ask for that then. Yep. And I, again, because of my previous experience, one of the things that we we haven't really touched on is actually leaving work Um, and that actually that may have to be the case for some people, either because employers won't, won't do what we're you know asking them to do they won't think outside the box or because you're unwell too unwell to go back to to that post so leaving work well is really really important and that is kind of uh, you know getting getting your union reps involved you know thinking about what you're going to spend your time doing afterwards and you know some of us within the employment group have left our our substantive roles mm-hmm. um myself pre-covid um and are kind of working in in different ways so you know it's not necessarily that leaving a job will be leaving a career it's just leaving that particular job because it doesn't support you back to the level of health and well-being and 
work-life balance that you that you need um so you know it's not it's not the end of of the line and there is hope for kind of doing something new and actually sometimes just you know going somewhere fresh where they don't know what you used to be like might be the thing that is needed for people so you know that's one of the things I'm really passionate about and kind of try and support people to do as well when their health is actually being negatively affected by the return to work process which we which is not what we want at all I think that's a a good point to to finish on and some people I know in the nursing long COVID community are beginning to think about doing something completely different yeah and and I think that's important and I encourage people to say that it's it will be a new beginning rather than a, a dead end yeah, an open door to walk through and see yeah. see what's on the other side. Thank you for letting us um, draw on all your knowledge and expertise. It was great. And I hope it hasn't used up too many of your spoons. <laughs> no. Um, so thank you so much. Thank, thank you. It's a pleasure working with you both. Oh, it's wonderful. I mean, I just really think it's great to have had the opportunity to think out loud as well and to, to hopefully give some ideas. Yep. Thank you. Cool. Thank you, Alison. If you enjoyed this podcast, don't forget to listen to the first podcast in the series, which is out already, in which Dr. Elaine Maxwell talks about the current evidence for long COVID. The third podcast is coming soon, so watch this space, and will be some nurses and midwives talking to me about their experiences of living with long COVID. You can subscribe to our podcast on your preferred platform. If you enjoy the show, please leave us a rating and review on the Evidence-Based Nursing podcast page on iTunes. You can find a link to it in the description of this podcast. This will help more people to find us. Thank you and see you soon. Mm